Right now we're going to read from the Gospel of John, uh, from chapter 17, from verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Uh, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to be opening God's Word with you this morning. And um, yeah, just going back on what Jacob said, yeah, we do have a big announcement to run through in just a bit. But leave that incredibly tantalizing piece of information off to the side, and I'm going to pray that, uh, that we'll be able to focus in on God's Word uh, and what He's calling us to as a community, knowing that what unites the church community is the mission that He has given us. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that you are good, that you are the righteous judge, and yet you are the one who sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, that we might be forgiven and washed and made new. And so, Father, we just pray that as we sit under your word this morning, that you would still our hearts and minds. We pray that we would sit humbly under your word, that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. And that this would move us to a deeper joy in Christ and a deeper trust in you and all for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the first of three weeks on church community and how it is that church community or the, the kind of community that Jesus calls us to is not very convenient. And in order to be that kind of community, to have that sort of deep community, you actually need a mission to overcome the inconveniences that, that come with being part of a church community. When I was a teacher, I, um, I, had to, I had the chance to check out a behavioral unit, which is where basically like there are naughty kids and then there are like elite special forces naughty kids. And those kids go to a behavioral unit where there's almost as many teachers as there are kids and there are big red panic buttons on all the walls and that sort of thing. And so I went there um, because uh, I'd, at a kind of an in-service day, I'd met some of the, the staff who were a part of it. They sounded like pretty incredible people and were doing some pretty amazing work. And so I went to check it out there, and when I got there, it was actually amazing to hear the kind of work that they were doing. Even in, in my sort of general teaching experience, I did have a bit of a heart for, for, for wild kids, and particularly knowing that when kids come from a really chaotic home environment, it's understandable that they come to school often a bit like a shaken Coke can, just ready for a fight and ready to blow up at, at the least kind of provocation. And so I wanted to see how, how these teachers were doing and actually trying to educate these kids and trying to do the best by them. And they were A1 teachers. They were 1,000% committed to these kids. They were 1,000% committed to each other as a staff. And the mission that they had was clear and focused, and it was very hard. It was really tough work. 
But it's also the case that I taught in schools where behavioural problems were a bit more minimal. Instead of having emergency staff meetings because Kai stabbed Jai with a shiv or something like that again, it'd be like, oh, 8C are being really talkative. They talk all through roll call. And when you're, when you're at a school like that, the focus can sometimes shift. And in those schools, often teachers will tell you this, they'll volunteer this, that, that in schools where behaviour management is toughest is often where the staff are most united. Because they're there, it's clear what the mission is, it's clear that you need to back each other up and you need help from your fellow staff. But once the pressure is off that, most teachers acknowledge that in an easier school, staff will tend to be a little bit more inclined to whine or to moan or to undermine each other over more trivial matters. Now, have you ever thought about why this is? It's because real community, the kind of community where you are in it together, where you've got each other's back, where you really are united, requires commitment. It requires dealing with conflict. It requires dealing with and sometimes even overlooking small grievances. It requires work and effort. And in these kind of behavioural units, the belief among the teachers is that their work really matters, that this really has an impact on kids and that it's really significant and it's worth the sacrifice doing it. The mission is worth it. But oftentimes when the school environment's a little bit easier, you can kind of forget that and you start to just be there kind of to take a paycheck. And there'll be a bunch of outstanding teachers who are still committed and then a bunch who are just kind of phoning it in and it'll be a different kind of environment. The truth is that it's a mission that unites a group of people together and this is the same with the church. When the church forgets its mission, it starts to fall into the trivial and petty kind of conflicts that come with that. When churches lose sight of this, they just become, they lose sight of the mission, which is to make more and stronger disciples, and the mission becomes just making or keeping people happy. And so instead of thinking about what Christ has called us to and his global purposes, instead it becomes about almost like a consumer service. What kind of sermons do people like? What kind of illustrations do they respond to? What music do people enjoy? And what it produces, instead of disciples, is consumers. Where people will go around and be like, I kind of like this church's teaching, but I don't really like the music here. I like the music over here. I don't really like the teaching. I like the small groups, but I don't like the kids' ministry. And it becomes a kind of a, how can I get the most while giving the least? And needless to say, this doesn't form deep community. Now, the community of the church is led and shaped by the mission of Christ. Nothing else will hold it all in orbit and will hold it together. If you want community and convenience, you'll find yourself very much disappointed. And the only thing that gets us over the line of doing the things that are difficult or inconvenient in order to build a strong church community is a sense that what we're doing matters. And this is a matter of heaven and hell, of life and death, and that Christ has commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations, and that you are called to be a part of that here in the city in which you live and a part of his global purposes all over the world. It's the mission that unites the church. And the night before Jesus died, when he gathers his disciples together for one last Passover meal, he prays in front of them, and he prays with a view to the church in the future. And he prays about what his church will be like, and he prays that his church will be united, and he prays that his church will be united for the sake of the mission. Look at what Jesus says in the passage that Jacob read out just before in John 17, 20 to 21. It says this, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus talking. 
And he's referring to the disciples who are in his immediate proximity. He's praying to the Father and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying to the Father. And when his disciples ask him how to pray, he says, start by praying our Father in heaven, which is why we pray to our Father. And he says, I'm asking not just for the disciples around me, but looking to the future church on the other side of his death and resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for the church, for those who believe because of the message that these disciples will actually share. And here, Jesus has in mind the church in the future. His people in Africa, in South America, in Northern Europe, uh, in North America, in the Middle East, in Asia, and yeah, even here in Australia. He has in mind the church who will believe because of the message that goes out from Judea to Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And he prays one thing. He says, Father, I ask that they would be one, that they would be united and not just any kind of oneness. He doesn't just say, I pray that they would get along or I pray that they would mostly like each other. I pray that they'd find a nice group of friends that they can kind of settle into. He says, I pray that they would be one just like you and I, Heavenly Father, are one. Just think on the gravity of that. He prays that the church would reflect the oneness of God himself. Now, I don't know how new you are to our church community or to Christianity generally, but it has been the tr tradition of the church right the way through time that we've believed that God is three in one. This is what we call the Trinity, which is a word you may be familiar with. It just kind of indicates three and unity, tri-unity, trinity. And it's the, the claim of the scriptures that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in a... If you grew up going to church, you may have gone to youth groups who, in teaching the Trinity, taught you some uh, less than helpful illustrations. I'll run through just a couple for you as a counterpoint to what the Bible teaches on the Trinity. The first, and maybe we could even get a show of hands. You don't have to name what leaders said it. You may have even been one. I may have used these at one point as well. Has anyone heard the illustration that God is like an egg? Yeah? The idea is like, the egg has a, a shell, a yolk, and a white, which is three, but also one. And so God is also three and one. And so God is like an egg. Now, what's the problem with this? The first problem is if you have the yolk of an egg, do you have an entire egg? You don't. You have one part of it. If you have Jesus, have you met one third of God? When Jesus walked on earth, did he claim to people that you get to meet 33.3 repeated percent of God? That's what you're seeing right in front of you. No, he claimed that you encountered God himself. That when the Spirit indwells his people, it's not a third of God that does it, but the fullness of God. Then actually the egg illustration falls down partly because it's just a coincidence of threes and ones. But it doesn't fit with the teaching that the Scriptures have. The, teacher, the Scriptures teach us there is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. But the other one that sounds slightly more sophisticated, partly because it's not an egg, is that God is like water. And that sound, that's a little bit more elegant as an illustration. But the idea is that um, it comes in three forms. 
so uh, solid, liquid, and gas. And in the same way, God comes in three forms. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what's the problem with this? If that were the case, that would mean that there was really just one God, but at one point he's like, I'm Jesus, and then he's like, surprise, I'm the Father. Now I'm the Holy Spirit. But really it's just one person acting in those roles. And not only that, but it also means that you never really know who the God is behind all of those roles. He's like an actor who puts on a mask and you can never actually really know what God is like. You're just getting one kind of particular facet of him. And this can't be the case because even just before this prayer, Jesus says to, to his disciples, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, God, Jesus whom you have sent. Jesus claimed that if you'd met him, you'd met God. And if you know the Father, you know God fully. Not a part of God or one of his characters that he's putting on, but God himself. Now there is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. And the metaphors and images don't work because ultimately they end up just being a coincidence of numbers, like three and one. You're like, like a car, it has a middle and a boot and an engine. Or you can, I mean, at that point you can just do anything. Now the reason they fall down is because God is not like water or he's not like an egg or he's not like anything that he has made because he is above and beyond his creation as the creator. In Isaiah 45, 6, God says, I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me. There is no one like God and there is no illustration that will fully encapsulate what God is like. He is not like us. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They are one. And so when Jesus says, God, Father, I pray that the church would be one just like we are one. That we'd be as united as that. That is an incredible prayer. How could this possibly actually work together? Well, the truth is it can because God himself knows that he will send his Holy Spirit to indwell his people. So that to be a church community, to be a follower of Christ, means that God dwells in you personally, meaning that you are united to every other follower of Christ in this room, but also across this globe and who have lived throughout all time. That you are united one in Christ, with one head, one church. Jesus can pray this because he knows he's going to follow through on it. And this is why it's so important that as a church community, we act as one, that we would actually be united. To not love one another is to act in denial of the reality that we have actually been made one in Christ. There's an incredibly rare disorder called, and I don't want to mess it up, it's called Body Integrity Identity Disorder. And it's an incredibly rare condition. And it occurs when your mental body image doesn't match your physical body. If you have Body Integrity Disorder, you may have a strong desire to amputate a limb or to become paralyzed. It's, it's an incredibly dangerous disorder to deal with. And when you hear that, you think, how can someone get to the point where it feels like a part of their body, like their hand or their arm or leg, it feels like it doesn't belong to them somehow? What a strange disorder that would be. But how equally strange when people look at the church and think, ah, I'm not really together with those people. To claim to follow Christ and have a relationship with him and yet want, not, want to, not want to know and be a part of his church community. 
It is the same kind of identity disorder. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, you are a body. How can an eye say to the, to the hand, I don't need you, or the leg to the arm, or anything like that? He says, in Christ, there is one head, there is one body, you are together. And so we are to act in that way. We're to love one another, serve one another as Christ does, Him as our example and as our head. But how is it that a church will overcome the usual things that just undermine community? Individualism, personal preferences, grievances, difficulties, all the things that come with being genuinely a part of community. All the things that you can avoid if you just don't get too close to people, if you keep an arm's length from a community. But if you really dive into a community, you open yourself to being discouraged or disappointed or hurt. And so how is it that a church would actually overcome the fear of that and the, the just general inclination to try and keep ourselves guarded enough that we can never be let down? What's well, right there in Jesus' prayer. He says the view of this oneness is not so that the church will get together and have this awesome party together where they just really get along. And they just bunker down until the end of the age when he comes back. But that the church would have in view that as they act according to the reality that they are one in Christ, it will be a witness that there is a God who has supernaturally intervened in human history. Look at what he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants his church to be one for the sake of the world. He says, as his church lives out the reality, not tries to create the reality, just lives out the reality, that every believer who trusts in Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means you are united to every other believer in this local church community and across the globe. And Jesus says, as they live this out, the world will see that there is a God. And the reason that church unity matters is because it affects the witness of the church. When churches fight and backbite and fall apart in all the ways that all communities normally do, it's no demonstration that there is anything unique going on in this group of people. But when a group of people from disparate backgrounds who otherwise would have no reason to be together or to love one another like a family start acting that way, it's a sign that something's going on. And when this happens, there is incredible, the result is an incredible church community. And this isn't just left in the scriptures kind of open and kind of theoretical. It lands in Acts 4. If you were with us last year, you may even remember this passage. But come with me to Acts 4 as we see how the church is when on mission. It says, And when, he had pra- when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice here that the church is on mission. The context of it, that first sentence, is that they were boldly speaking the word of God. 
Even in the midst of growing persecution, the church was witnessing that there is a God who has come and who has offered forgiveness to anyone who believes in Christ. And as they do this, the church is growing. But you see that the answer to Jesus' prayer says they were of one heart and soul. That there was a oneness there. And it was expressing itself through the meeting of financial needs. Those who had more were meeting the needs of those who had less. And they had no reason to do this. They weren't family members. They weren't part of the same ethnic group. They were a group who were united in Christ and around Christ in his mission. And the result was an incredible unity. I don't know when the time is. If you've, if you've walked as a follower of Jesus for a while, and this may be less familiar if this is you've come to faith even recently. But if you're a follower of Jesus, when was the time when you felt most united with the church of God? I would put to you that it was probably at a time when you were most on mission. I used to do something called a beach mission. It was in fact where I met Mel, my wife now. So that wasn't the mission. The mission was <laughs> to reach people. But with, with beach mission, you would get a genuinely uh, eclectic is the polite word and wacky is the more accurate word, group of people come together. I led a team for a couple of years and as a leader I had to, I had to vet people who were potentially coming in because you, you just had no context. People were coming from church backgrounds, you had no idea who they were. And there was one guy who um, I called his reference and he's like, yeah, no, I think it would be good for him to go on. Like, he, he's got a bit of growing up to do and everything but like, I think it would be good for him to go on mission. I was like, okay, I might, I might just catch up one-to-one with him. In the course of our conversation, he asked whether it would be a problem that he had a, a weapons charge for carrying, possessing an illegal weapon. But just hear me out, it was when he was a minor, so it was actually okay. I was like, all right, you might need to sit this one out, bro. Like, we'll, just, we'll take it easy for a bit. But once people got onto the team, you were there, and it was a week together. And oftentimes at the beginning of the week, you're like, how is this group actually going to get on? But as you get about doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is witnessing to people you've never met, walking out with people, sharing the gospel, running programs, meeting kids, teens, adults from all kinds of different backgrounds and sharing the gospel, by the end of the week, no one wants to leave. I mean, a little bit, you're a little bit tired, but no one wants to leave each other. They're like, when are we going to have the reunion? When are we going to get back together? Because as we step out in faithfulness to be on mission for Christ, it unites his church. Jesus prays here that his church would be one, just as he and the Father Father are one. And we are. We are united by the Holy Spirit. We are one people, united in Christ. But more than that, we are called to be on mission, to share the gospel. And as we do that, you experience a kind of unity that you can't without it. That is how Jesus designed his church to be. And often, it can be hard in a church community, in the early days of like a church plan as we were in 2013, the unity is often quite high because everyone's stepping out and taking a risk together. Like we're going to make this happen by hook or by crook. We're going we're to do whatever needs to be done to pull this thing together. And in that time, there is such a need to depend on God that it actually, you, you pray a lot more, you see prayers answered, that encourages the church. And as you do that, and as you do this together, it really unites the church. And whilst it's very hard to replicate that kind of unity at a later stage in church life, there are key moments as the church goes along where God, by certain circumstances, does draw his church together when we have to work through something. And we have one of those moments coming up in our church life. 
Each week, as we've looked at the scriptures, we've had some way of applying the scriptures, and this week is a big one. We have an opportunity in front of us and a decision to make about it. To give you the background to this, last year we began the process of planning the future of City Light and asking the question over the next five plus years, how can we most effectively just carry out the mission that Jesus has given us to make more and stronger disciples? And during that time, we took time as elders, as committee, as staff, to fast and to pray and to bring these things before God and to think and plan. And during this time, an opportunity came up. I occasionally meet up with other pastors who are here on the peninsula. Uh, and I'd been meeting up with um, a guy called Mikey who's in charge of the church up at, um, at 665 Darling Street, which is a little bit further up the street on Darling Street. And they started their church plant around the same time we did, maybe a year later. But they'd made the pretty brave uh, and wise decision they felt at the time to finish up. That actually was the right time for them um, to call it. And while that was a difficult decision, they managed the process really well and closed, I think, in a way that was helpful and encouraging for all those who were a part of the mission. And as a part of that, we began discussing with them whether we might be able to make use of that building or what kind of opportunities there might be there. And so we met up with a few of the people who were responsible for deciding what to do with the property that's up there that's now empty, that had a church plan in it but now doesn't. And during that conversation, it was presented that there might be an option for us to join the Presbyterian denomination and to meet on that site as a Presbyterian church responsible for that building and its assets. Now, in order to do this, we would need to agree as a church to submit a petition to become a Presbyterian congregation. And I realize this is a big shift. And if that were accepted, it would then be weighed up whether we or another church congregation would go into that building. And so that's the decision we have at the moment, whether to take the next step of actually writing a petition. And so we've decided uh, over December and praying through it over December and January that it's the right time to bring this opportunity and this decision before the church. And what I'm going to do here over the next couple minutes is to lay out why we think this, decision, this opportunity has some merit and what the process will be for making a decision. Firstly is the why. Why, after making the decision to come down here, after changing from having two services up on Darling Street to one and then moving down to this beautiful church hall where you can shoot hoops after service and get a view of Sydney Harbour. Why, after doing this and growing and seeing people come through Alpha and seeing our gr small groups grow and develop, why would we do anything to shake it up? You may be thinking, Jeremy, are you a maniac who just hates stability? <laughs> and that is a, a little bit true, but that is not the reason that we're engaging with this. Like with all things, it's mission first. The reason we came down here is we asked the question like, is this actually going to help us go forward in the mission or hinder us? And it was a difficult decision and it meant a lot of changes, especially for you members who were part of the 4pm congregation. But we did it and in the end God has really blessed it and worked through it. And so we think there are three reasons primarily that I'm going to lay out why this, this opportunity could be really helpful in taking us forward. That is, we asked the question, over the next five, ten and beyond years, Will this more effectively help us to make more and stronger disciples and make a difference in our city and our world? And we think there are three reasons why that could be a yes. The first is this, and a shot of the building will come up for you. The first is that there is a, it's a more visible and permanent location. 
So this is the building on Darling Street. If you can give us a shot of the next one. This was, I think, of their church service during COVID lockdown. Sorry if that gives anyone a little bit of PTSD. You need to, there's plenty of room up the back, though, just to curl up in the fetal position. But this is the first building you pass on the way into, the first major building you pass on the way into Balmain. It's right where the action is at Roselle. And just like we saw in the first week, Jesus calls his church to be a city on a hill. And right now we are a city in a valley, but that is actually up the top of the hill. And I say that jokingly, but it is true that most of you who've come here today made your way through the catacombs to get down here. But to get here, you have to know that we're here. And the blessing of that is that as a church community, as we're on mission and inviting people to hear the word of God, you brought so many friends and family along. And some of you are here today because somebody did that. But it's an opportunity to be in a more visible location right up where the action is at Roselle. But as well as that, it's also a more permanent location. They're here, it's been, it's been great to be able to move down here. But at any given moment, if the school needs to renovate it or there's any other reason, it does make us a little bit vulnerable to decisions being made where suddenly we're, we're going to have to find a place to be. And to move at a time when we have a choice to is a good chance to be ahead of the change. That's the first reason, more visible and more permanent. A site that could be, where we would meet and gather and share the gospel, not just for 10 years, but for 20 and beyond. The second one is more support to free up ministry. We are making a change just to go in a different building like we did when we came down here. This is a change to join the denomination, to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of the visible church. Now here, we're kind of the equivalent of like living the bachelor or bachelorette lifestyle of like a church. We come and go as we please, very few commitments, you know, we, we, we just make decisions and then act on them. And this is the trade-off in church, that basically you have to trade off. You can have maximum freedoms and minimum support, or you can have maximum supports and minimum freedoms, and that's the kind of cost balance that goes with it. And so in order to be effective for the long term, you want to have the right balance of freedoms and support. Now back in 2019, when we tried to plan a campus, and it actually failed, it took enormous resources out of Balmain of staff and volunteer time to pull that together. And to have a denomination that have groups who are trained to help work through situations like that or to bring some support in those times is a significant boost to ministry. And it's not just that. There are other things, uh, other kind of admin uh, and administrative focuses that they can actually take load off the local church for. It means increased accountability and safeguards for leaders and the congregation. And it also means more support. There is a strength to this. That's the second reason, more support to free up ministry. And the third one is more financial margin to send and support missionaries and to continue our work here. The building is free. It also draws some revenue from rentals, which means that obviously we won't have to pay for hire of a building, which saves us a good almost 30K a year. Uh, and with that, the point of that isn't just that we would make it easier, because obviously the mission is hard and Christ calls us to sacrifice but it may give us an opportunity for a more sustainable long-term budget and also to send and support more missionaries, even as a small church community. Now, I've just run through those super quickly, and I realize also, I am conscious, I'm only running through the positives. But the reason we're doing that is I'm about to go through how this process is going to go about, and I'm going to be visiting all small groups this week, so there's a chance to get into all the nuts and bolts of it. But also... If you have any questions, feel free to ask me while we're here this morning or to email me or even to catch up. 
We want to make sure we get across all the information as much as possible in this time before we make a decision so that when we do, it's a good one, just like when we came down here. And so I'm going to run you through how we're going to do this. The process is that this week I'll visit all small groups. We'll gather all the questions, hopefully answer as many as possible. And on March 10, the elders, staff, committee and community group leaders will meet some representatives from the Presbyterian Church to make sure that it's not just me putting a sunny side on it, but they're getting the actual information about how this would all work and to bring any questions that the small groups had. And then from the week of the 10th to the 17th is going to be a week of prayer where we just bring this decision before God because it's not a minor thing. And then on March 17, the elders, staff, committee and community leaders will make a decision as to whether or not we'll sign the petition to become a Presbyterian church. And at that point, they'll make a decision about whether or not they'll be accepted, whether or not we would be going to the building. And after that, we would need to vote on it as a church. So this is just a decision to make a petition. And that rhymes, so that's handy. But with all of that, we could go through that whole process. We could talk in small groups, you could email me, we could go back and forth, we could do all of that, and then it doesn't happen. And so the question would be, why would we take the risk? Why would we risk all of that to just end up right back where we are, on all the time it could actually take up, and the thinking, and the prayer, and all of that? Well, it says in the Bible, you have to risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, because everyone's aware that that isn't in the Bible. But the truth is, the mission is risky. Coming down here is, planning a church was, it will and always be, and will always be. And the only question is which risks we're actually going to take on. If there's a chance that this will help us advance the gospel and to grow as a church community, it'll be a blessing. But not only that, it is a chance for us to live out what Jesus prayed for. That as we go about a decision, it'll be a, a chance for us as a church community to love one another well. Some of you are change-forward people. You were like, you had me at big change. I'm in. I, I don't need to know the details. Just change it up. I don't care. Others of you are like, if you ever change anything ever again, I will never attend in my life, or I'll write you angry emails for the rest of your life. I realize in this church, the blessing of being a church community is that God has given us different personalities, and that helps us to make good decisions. And so it will be a test as to whether or not we'll be patient with one another, whether we'll be loving, whether we'll fulfill the word in Ephesians 4 to bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another. And so I think any which way, God will use this to refocus us as we ask the question, what are we actually about? How do we make decisions? What are we doing here? But also to strengthen us to love one another and be united as a church community. I'll finish with this. John Piper in his book, Risk is Right, says, If you will live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. May God unite us around this in every way, come what may. We're going to take some time now to pray together, and Anna is actually going to lead us in that time. Please join me in praying. Loving Father, we just come before you today. We're your children. We're your church. Um, and we know that our wisdom is, is very finite, whereas yours is infinite. You see possible futures and you know so much more than we do. So, and so we ask for your guidance. Uh, we pray that just as you've promised 
If we put your kingdom first, all the rest will be added to us. We pray that we will seek first your kingdom in this decision of whether to put the petition forward. Help us to think clearly and carefully to discern the best path um, for this congregation. And we ask for your protection, Lord, that we won't put our hope in anything other than you, that we won't be looking to trust in an institution or a building or independence or any other strategy. Uh, we believe that you alone provide for us and we're your children. And you're, you alone are the one who brings fruitfulness to our lives and to our ministry. Um, we pray that wherever you take us, that our lives will be fruitful and the blessing of Christ will flow to the community around us. Lord, in a group of this size, we are likely to see things differently. Uh, we pray that we'll listen well to one another, that we'll learn from those who are very enthusiastic and we'll learn from those who are unenthusiastic and have, have valid objections. Uh, we pray that as we discuss the pros and cons, that these different perspectives will lead us to the very best outcome. We pray for unity as um, not everyone's decision or preferred option will be the outcome and we're not even control, in control of the outcome either. We pray for faith, that as we prayerfully step forward, that whichever way it takes, that we'll rest upon what Jesus promised in Matthew 28 that we read last week as well, when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We rely on that promise now, Lord, as we move towards a decision. We put our hope in you, our Lord and our Saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.